0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: In a sudden flash
2: it all comes clear. It's a Eureka moment and epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning,
0: and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids.
1: Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
0: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. All very excited here. Who have we got on, Alex?
3: Oh, I'm really excited today. We have Catherine Schofield with us today. She's a Senior Lecturer in South Asian Music and History at King's College London. Hi, Catherine. Hi there. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so glad you got in touch because we've got an excellent topic today. Tell everyone what we're going to talk about.
0: Okay, so we're going to talk about um, the history of Indian courtesans um, so South Asia, what is now India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, and the amazing women singers, dancers, artists, uh, literatures who were the really, the only main public uh, women figures that you would see in male space. And yes, they also uh, had sexual relations with their patrons.
3: And we get to trash the East India Company a bit, don't we? We
0: do. Because, yes, a lot of things that uh, the East India Company did in the 19th and 20th century has meant that the courtesan tradition, it's not died out, but it has struggled to survive.
3: So let's start by telling everyone, what do you mean by the term Indian courtesans? It's a really good time to talk about them, isn't it? Suddenly become relevant again.
0: It has become very relevant and not least because um, those of you who have been watching the new Miranaya BBC adaptation of Vikram Set's novel A Suitable Boy will have noticed that a very prominent, very starry character is an Indian courtesan called Saeed Bai, played by the great Indian actress, Tabu. Um, and she is gorgeous. She is glamorous. She is also, for those of you who remember the book, and I'm not going to give any spoilers for those of you who've, who've read <laughs> the book or, or, you know, yet uh, for the series. Um, she is also quite melancholy and it's, it's quite a tragic tale there. Um, and she is the classic North Indian courtesan. They were also called to wife um, or Baiji. So Bai was an honorific term that you would give to a great, Uh, performer, um, singer, dancer. They were known for their wit. They were known for their mastery of etiquette, of conduct, and so on. Um, In the South, uh, in South India, there was another community of courtesans called Devadasis. Um, And these women were um, married to the deity in Hindu temples. So they were dedicated by their families to the service of the God as young girls. Um, and they danced in the temple um, for the deity, but they were also hired by um, the the ruler um, or, uh, or the patrons of the temple uh, to dance for them. Um, and uh, they also sometimes performed as salon performers, and again, um, also uh, provided uh, sexual um, uh, pleasure outside. Uh, marital bonds so the crucial thing here is actually the difference between courtesans and wives or concubines so wives and concubines before the 20th century um they were responsible for shoring up the dynasty for producing heirs to the dynasty we're talking about elite women here Mm -hmm. um and because of that they were Kept in segregated in the women's quarters or the zanana or the harem, um, and they could be really well educated and have a big political role to play. One Mughal uh, wife was uh, governor of Delhi, for example, for a time. Um, but they stayed in private to ensure that the dynasty was intact. Courtesans, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, had to stay outside the harem and they performed in male space as public figures. And so you have going way back to ancient Indian times, the development of matrilineal lineages, matrilineal hereditary professional women, where the mothers and daughters uh, would um, perform, but they would not marry. Um, And so they could be in public um, and perform. Um, and their sons and uh, their, uh, the, the menfolk of the, of the um, tradition um, would accompany them on musical instruments, and some of them would be indentured out to other trades like carpentry or whatever. Um, so you've got this separation of two different types of women, both of them thoroughly respected, um, but really quite different and separate.
2: That was a long answer. So, <laughs> so culturally, how important are courtesans in India? Because they span a huge period, don't they? Yeah. And how is their world structured? Okay,
0: so um, starting um, from the um, ancient times, um, so some of you will be familiar with uh, a little book called the Kama Sutra. Mm -hmm. Um, And contrary to popular belief, this great Sanskrit work by um, Vatsyayana, um, which was written around about the third century of the Common Era, is in fact largely a manual of statecraft and etiquette rather than a sex treatise so there is a section on the arts of sex obviously and that's the that's the the bit that the uh colonizers pulled out and um, and made more uh, uh seductive and amazing by you know introducing pictures and things mm-hmm. um, but um but there's this big section um before you get to that stuff on the role of the courtesan and what the courtesan has to do um and So Vatsyayana advises that the courtesan has to be skilled in all 64 arts that define a cultured person. And so he lists them all in this incredibly daunting uh, list. Singing, playing on musical instruments, dancing, writing, drawing, picture-making, trimming, decorating, knowledge of magic, tailoring, carpentry, architecture, chemistry, mineralogy, cock, quail and ram fighting, the rules of society, how to uh, pay respect, etiquette, um, and so forth. And a courtesan who had all of these became known as a ganika. Um, and they played these incredibly important public roles in ancient India as dancers, singers, bearers of high culture, and, of course, uh, bedmates. And it's important to remember that um, pleasure was a really important, uh, had a really important place in Hindu thought, in ancient Hindu thought, um, as a, one of the virtues that um, uh, men and women should strive for. Um, and um, we also know a little bit about their education and the fact that the state paid for the Garnica's education. Um, and so they were taught, again, to sing, to play on the vena, which is a, a, a stringed instrument, flutes, drums. They were taught to write, recite, dance, act, paint, read the thoughts of others, uh, manufacture scents and garlands of flowers. Uh, they were taught the art of shampooing, uh, which was not washing your hair, but actually massage.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and the, of course, the art of attracting others, uh, the arts of seduction. So, you know, this huge set of things, um, that, and that list was from another text called the Artashastra, which is about the 7th century CE, again in Sanskrit. Um, so... Um, So in terms of uh, social uh, life, we know that they were effectively uh, the property of the state if they were elite courtesans. So they were at the beck and call of the raja or lord of uh, the domain. Um, And many cities and courts had courtesan quarters attached to them where courtesans lived with their entourages um, and with all the people who supplied them with makeup and jewelry and and their musicians and so on Um, and um, hopefully we're going to see some of those scenes in A Suitable Boy for a much later time period.
3: Um, I'm just reading Alina's mind here her mind went straight to entourage, diamonds, jewels, I want to be a courtesan but then was quickly (laughs) scuppered by the fact that she is absolutely tone deaf.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you could. I mean, you could have been oh, one of those courtesans who majored in dance because there, there was you go.
2: a I can't dance. Either. Here. So,
0: so, um, so, um, this is a bit later. We're going to skip now to the 18th century and mm. and and to courtesans that the East India Company might have been a bit more familiar with. Um, but they danced in these troops of, of of dancers and singers, and the younger ones, the unmarried ones, the virgins, the ones who were, you know you could pay a lot of money to, uh, you know, do flower. the flower. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were dancers. They did the dancing. Um, and some of them would uh, sing a little bit while they danced. But the main meat of the program and the more, res- uh, more um, higher respect was given to this was for the uh, the older women who had maybe had a few babies by this time, maybe a little bit uh, rounder in the belly, perhaps a little bit less lithe, they would sing. And of course, your voice matures through your 20s into your 30s. And so their voices were much better um, at an older age. So so you could have been one of those young things, you know, with your beautiful uh, ankle bells and your jewels and your, you know, sort of tossing your hair and your, you know, jangling earrings and, and everything else as you danced. And then perhaps, I don't know, go off and have, have babies.
3: You know what, though? It's striking me already. There is nothing remotely slutty about being an Indian courtesan, is there? It's not, not like a sordid um, like, occupation frowned upon morally.
0: Not at all. So um, in the 18th century and early 19th century, you have all of these descriptions by um, European travellers, women and men who are shocked to find that the dancers are not at all Immoral. Yes. <laughs> they they make this comment that that it's primarily a sort of waving of the drapery um, and little pirouettes and little walks and 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 what's re- the most seductive thing is the way they look at the men, sort of sidelong out of out of their eyes and 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 so on. So so they're actually quite you know they've been told about oh the Indian arch and how racy it is, um, and they suddenly discover that actually it's really quite modest um, in comparison to. Uh, ballerinas on the operatic stage in London or Paris at the end of the eighteenth, early nineteenth century.
3: And we're um, using it as quite an all-encompassing term, courtesan, but there are many different kinds, aren't there? You've already mentioned yeah. the elite ones that do the yeah. whole list.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of different types of courtesans, and this is because there were an awful lot of um, matrilineal communities. Um, with um, various different caste names who specialised in different things and specialised in um, different areas. Um, and you have everything from these top courtesans. So the, the Kanchani, the golden ones, the gilded ones who were employed at the Mughal court um, uh, and who eventually got subsumed under this kind of umbrella term to life as the primary Muslim courtesans. But then you have um, other courtesans, um, say attached to the Rajput courts, um, called bhagatan, which actually comes from a a kind of a devotional word, meaning devotee. Um, And they um, both performed in the court and um, in the temples of the court but they were also actually allowed, more unusually, to enter the harem and teach the women of the house, the the secluded women, uh, music and and dance. Um, so they were quite different. But then you've got things all the way down to um, uh, people um, who had had the name Randi or Cusby, um, which in modern uh, Hindi are you know really quite offensive words. For, yeah, you know just sex workers um and um and um so there were um a number of um uh women whose life uh uh, whose careers were more along the lines of largely uh sex work um with some music and dancing um so you know um and Um, absolutely no stigma to those women at all. There was no stigma at all um, to um, women who performed uh, primarily sex work um, and who, who, you know, it was all dependent, really dependent on what your particular skills were and also how much you, you know, you were worth and which strata of society you were performing for. It's also worthwhile noting that there were male courtesans. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, and this is much less well-known, they weren't called courtesans, um, but a number of younger men who danced in these hereditary communities, particularly puns and baharupias, um, also performed roles as, um, as courtesans for the male elite. And it's really important, again, to remember that um, before colonialism, um, same-sex love and same-sex... Um, you know, having sex with another man um, was regarded as completely um, acceptable um, for Mughal men, for Rajput men, Hindu and Muslim, as long as there was a status distinction between the two men that was observed. Um, uh, they were much more wary about uh, relationships that might have the the potential to topple uh, political status quo. You know, you weren't supposed to get too addicted to your uh, oh, okay drum, right um you know if you got too addicted to either your male or female courtesan and they um asked for political favors or tried to get you to marry them then that might cause political ructions
3: oh we're about to we've just done a three-parter on uh Austrian oh, Hungary yeah. in the First World War. <laughs> Count von Hotzendorf basically smashing up the Austrian army to try and impress his mistress.
0: Yeah, it's very it's it, it, they would have loved that. So the the historical chronicle writers would have gone to town with that story.
3: Yeah. And they would
0: have made it um the man uh would have been seduced by um not so much by the courtesan herself, but by his base instinct, his desire for music, for pleasure, for dance, for wine, uh, for sex. And he pours all of that desire into this one woman or one man who dances and sings for him. And they encourage him to abandon his duty. And his fate always in the historical chronicles is that he will lose his kingdom or he will lose his life. And it's really not a story about courtesans at all because they disappear from the story. You don't know what happens to them. Yeah. Um, And this story then gets repeated and repeated right down to the 20th century and to some of the stories. You know, those of you who are watching A Suitable Boy, watch out for this story, this cautionary tale about courtesans in the character of Saeed Abai.
2: So some of these courtesans rise to positions of huge power, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um,
0: so I'll give you one example. So there's, there was this amazing um, courtesan, uh, probably from Lucknow, um, who started life as a woman called Farzana uh, Zebunissa. Um, and it's slightly unclear what her background was. Some people claim that she was Circassian, so from the Caucasus, but it was really common for fair-skinned, because fair skin, of course was regarded as more lovely the same old boring racist yeah. story. <laughs> but um uh they often purported to be kashmirian or circassian when they um uh came into north india because uh you know coming from you know Jalunda or something like that was just nowhere near as glamorous as <laughs> I love that you or, mentioned Jalunda because
3: you know. that's where my best friend is from. Oh, not glamorous often. at all.
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> no shade on Jalunda. It's, um, it's amazing. Um, um, but um, but uh, yeah, so they would pretend to come from these places. So it's not really clear whether she really was Circassian, But she was, she was picked up in Lucknow by a, um, a European mercenary, a Swiss mercenary, uh, Luxembourgian Luxembourgian mercenary called Walter Reinhardt, who always dressed in black. And so he was known as Somba, which became in Hindi, in Urdu, Samru. Um, and she married him, um, or what became his mistress, and she became known as Begum Samru. Um, and um, her story is fascinating. If eventually, um, he fights his way up to having, you know, a, quite a large mercenary army, and then he dies. And she takes over the army, and she starts building her own power base at a place called Sardhana, which is just north of Delhi, about three hours' drive by car, very close to Meerut, where, those of you who can know your Indian history, that's where the Indian uprising of 1857 happened, about mm-hmm. uh, 20 years after she died, after Begum Samuel died. Um, and she set up a power base there. And she used her mercenary army to help protect the Mughal emperor in Delhi, um, and so firstly Shah Alam II, who treated her like a daughter, um, and he was blinded um, gruesomely by a, uh, an Afghan marauder in 1788 and was really at this point uh, simply a figurehead for Maratha control of the region. But Begum Samra also supported him um, with her army, um, and she uh, continued to support his um Uh, his successor, Akbar Shah, when he came to the throne in 1806. She was very well respected by the British for the role of her army in helping to quell disorder in the region because it was actually very, um, the region around Delhi was really very unsafe and quite, quite uh, wild um, in the early 19th century. Um, And she converted to Catholicism and she built this massive basilica, um, which is still there um, on grand European style um, and throughout this time she herself um, patronized courtesans um, and uh, Hindustani classical music and poets um, who would all come to Sardana, um or would go to her she also had a, a haveli a palace in in Delhi and they would come to her her palace um, and they would perform there for her um, and her uh, successor, a man called uh, David Ochterlony da Sumri, um, uh, became um, the first Indian to enter the British Parliament in
3: 1841. Oh, I really like her. Yeah, she She's was cool,
0: awesome. She was awesome. Um, and really, you know, and she was tiny. She was oh, really a, Yeah, there's a really fantastic painting of her. I, I think it's in the British Library, surrounded by her entourage, um, and various Europeans also paying court to her and British soldiers and so on. Um, and, and she's this tiny, tiny little elderly woman. Um, she must have been about four foot six or something, the size of my 10-year-old. Um, yeah And what a woman.
3: Never mess with an Indian granny. Absolutely not. No way. I'm going to chuck another name at you. Yeah. Uh, one that I think you, I can't remember if it was before we started recording uh, Malika Baitanda.
0: Oh yeah. Who okay, is she? So, so she is another extraordinary figure. Um, not so much as a political figure, but as an extremely important cultural figure. So Malika Baitanda, um was, um, she, her family were originally from Ahmedabad in Gujarat um, mm-hmm. and her um, mother was abandoned by her father in the great upheaval of the 18th century, of the middle of the 18th century, um, and they were left to fend for themselves. Um, and so they tagged on to a group of Pagtans. So if you remember, I mentioned the Pagtans who were the employees of the Rajput, Rulers um, and who performed, and these this group of pugdans taught um, uh, the um, uh, Malaka Bai Chanda's mother um, to sing and dance, hmm. and um, and so they started moving as itinerants to um, south, and they ended up in the entourage of um, Nizamul Mulk who became the first independent ruler of Hyderabad. Hyderabad eventually became the biggest and wealthiest princely state. Um, And so they made their way to to, to the Deccan and then to Hyderabad um, with the Nizams. Um, And Malakabai then um, successfully um, became uh, the mistress of um, a Maratha general called Raja Rarambha. two prime ministers um, of the Nizams, Nizam, uh, uh, the, the second Nizam of Hyderabad. <laughs> um, so she, and she, and, but her claim to fame, her, her two claims to fame, firstly is that she's recognised as the first really fabulous Urdu poet yeah. um, who produced a diwan or book of her own poetry in Urdu. Um, uh, poetry, And secondly, because in the middle of a dance and song extravaganza to celebrate the defeat of Tipu Sultan by the combined forces of the British and, and, and Hyderabad in 1799, she pirouetted right up to John Malcolm, who was um, a member of the residency staff at the time, and presented um, her book of uh, poetry to him in the middle of this notch Um, and he slipped it into his breast pocket um, and took it home with him and it ended up in what are now uh, the India Office collections in the British Library. So you can go and have a look.
3: Oh, brilliant.
0: It's an amazing little artifact, but she, yeah, but she was really extraordinary. Uh, But the other thing that was interesting about her was that she, in a complete reversal of, of fortunes, she never married. She had a massive um, uh, mansion where she trained her girls um, in in the arts of dance and song and seduction. She um, built her mother and herself a beautiful tomb. She endowed all these religious buildings um, on the hill of Mullah Ali Shrine um, in Hyderabad. Um, And she also um, had behind her a man. So, There's usually, it's usually the other way around, isn't it? You know, the the joke about, um, uh, you know, behind every man, there is, you know, an extremely organised, you know, brilliant woman uh, behind every great man. Well, in this case, behind this great woman, there was this older man who was a hereditary musician from Delhi, descended from the top, the legendary, uh, musicians of Delhi. Um, Those of you who know your Indian music history will recognize the names of Tansin and Sadarang. And he was dissented jointly from those two. Um, And he was her music teacher and mentor. And he became like a father figure to her. So he was an anchor really. So Mm. He was technically in her employ. He lived with her in her house, but it was he, I think, I think he was the only man she could really trust not to basically, trust to, to care about
3: her as for who she was. Not try and sleep with her.
0: Not, not try to sleep with her. Not to, <laughs> it, no, no, no political games. Yeah. Uh, and they were both um, appear to have been Shia Muslims and joined in their devotion to, uh, to Hazrat Ali and the, the family of Hazrat Ali. So a really interesting
2: story. Tell us how Sophia Plowden has contributed to your research <laughs> okay so so this is
0: another courtesan story so we 're moving back to um, back to Lucknow um, and um, so this is um, slightly earlier than Malakabai. so Malakabai uh, dies in the um, in eighteen twenty four and so we 're moving back to seventeen eighty eight to Lucknow um, and in the 1780s, um, there was a real fashion amongst English women in um, stuck in India with nothing to do uh, with their husbands um, to run around and collect the songs um, of courtesans of, of, of the great wife whose um, uh, performance they were invited to by the local rulers uh, or the local you know wealthy merchant or whatever, yeah. um, and it was similar to the, the fashion for running around and collecting Scottish songs or Irish songs or, or which is the similar time, similar time period. And um, so she went to Lucknow twice with her husband, uh, who was an East India company official. And this and she collected songs there, which she, she then took back to sing herself at masquerades dressed in the dress of a courtesan, which she, describes in minute details in one of her letters in the British Library Um, and um, singing the songs in their original language, even though she didn't really understand the language at all. Um, And then when she went back in 1788, she collected these songs. And when she went back in 1788, there was a massive star who just turned up called Khanum Jan. And Khanum Jan had grown to popularity actually in the British cantonment in nearby Kanpur, um, where there's even a satirical poem about her leaving and how devastated everybody is in English, um, leaving Kanpur to go to the much more prestigious court of the Nawab of Lucknow, the ruler of independent Lucknow. And Lucknow in the 18th and 19th centuries was the byword for the best of late Mughal culture. Everything was the best there. Okay. Um, and, sh- and so she became the star turn in Lucknow. And... Sophia Plowden and Khan Jan struck up this very interesting professional relationship where Khan Jan would come to Plowden's house and sing to her and Plowden would write down the tunes of the songs and she would get her secretary, secretary, her Munshi, to write out the Persian and Urdu and Punjabi uh, and Hindi lyrics Um, so that she would then be able to sing these songs for herself. And these we still have, so we actually know what some of these songs sounded like, which is quite remarkable. But from the other point of view, another thing about Lucknow courtesans um, was that in this time period, late 18th, early 19th century, it's quite clear that their most important uh, both um, friendships and sexual relationships were with each other, which with other Tawife um and
3: um this i was gonna uh, ask you what is rekti is it rekti? Okay. Is that how you say it <laughs> rekti
0: okay yeah. so there's this there is this genre of um urdu poetry or song lyric called rekti so there mm. are these so some of you may have heard of uh, the urdu ghazal um, which is this couplet-like form, which has a kind of A, A, B, A structure like a European aria. So these were kind of recognisable musically sort of to Europeans, so they quite like them and they like listening to them and they like trying to sing them themselves. Um, there is another genre which is, is essentially the same form, but instead of with the Urdu ghazal it being um, a man writing about a woman Um, or possibly another man, because gender is ambiguous in the Eoduchosal. It's Mm -hmm. a woman writing about, in women's language, often the language of courtesans, often about another woman. So you have these rechities, which um, talk in quite explicit detail about sexual relationships between uh, courtesans. Um, and there's a particularly nice one from the late 18th century by a poet called Rangin who was famous for writing some of the most racy mm-hmm. um, in which a woman upbraids her lesbian lover. So the lesbian lover was the term Zanahi. Oh, Zanahi, ever since you heard the keyboard play, you have become obsessed with a foreign woman. So... <laughs> <laughs> Here you have a situation where it's quite possible, it's conceivably possible that Kharnam John actually had a big crush on Sophia Plowden. Um,
3: Uh,
2: Yeah.
0: And we have a painting of Sophia Plowden from approximately this time, a little bit later in London, um, where she really was actually quite an attractive woman. Um, So, you know, and she would have had that, you know, lovely fair skin. um, This uh, is true.
3: Fairer than all of them.
0: Yes. So, Yeah. And so, is it
3: just so, in terms of you're saying the most important relationships with each other, that's emotionally as well as sexually? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The most important emotional, social, and sexual relationships were with each other. Um, and there's a great article by um, a woman called Vina Oldenburg. She went and talked to um, some of the um, daughters um, and still practicing to wives in Lucknow in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and they talk very freely about their own relationships with each other and about the kinds of language that women use when they make love to other women um, in this time period. So.
3: How <laughs> do courtesans come into events surrounding the uprising in
0: 1857? Yeah. OK, so they actually play quite um, an important role. So. You know, I've just been talking about uh, Lina Oldenburg's work looking um, at um, modern-day courtesans. And she actually came to this because when she was looking at Lucknow in the mid to late 19th century, and particularly looking at the effect of the Indian uprising on Lucknow's culture, because Lucknow was devastated by the uprising,
3: Mm.
0: she picked up the fact that the Tawafes in Lucknow were all in the highest tax brackets. And the reason we know this is because the British punished them for assisting the rebels. So a number of the most prominent courtesans uh, throughout North India, um, so just to backtrack a little bit for those who don't know about the Indian uprising, um, in 1857, um, the East India Company um, tried to force um, their... Indian soldiers, Muslims and Hindus, to use uh, the new rifle cartridges, which required them to tear greased cartridges with their teeth. Um, And uh, rumours flew around that um, these cartridges had been greased with pork and beef fat. And, of course, beef uh, cows are holy to Hindus and pigs are forbidden for Muslims. Mm. Um, And... There was a whole other. There's a whole other pile of things that went. in. This was merely the trigger for the uprising. Yeah,
3: but it was um, horrific, wasn't it?
0: And it was absolutely horrific. And the stories are horrific. Um, and India went up in flames, um, particularly in the north, um, for a period of uh, over twelve months into 1858. Um, and Lucknow was one of the main uh, centres for this. Um, but um, in Meerut, just before um, uh, just before this all started, just before the first mutineers uh, mutinied, um, uh, there was a lot of um, kind of um, going backwards and forwards about this. And the um, courtesans and prostitutes in Myred, um goaded um, the those who had chosen to bite the cartridges for having done so and for being um, anti-patriotic. Um, and, when, and, and they were also acting, as the ancient courtesans did way back when, as secret messengers between, um, between various players um, in the uprising. And so they were really important in the first sparks that set the, um, the uh, uprising off. But also when you get to the Lucknow courtesans and the really wealthy ones, they were funding it. They wow. were funding it with their all their jewels and 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 uh, and money and 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 so on um, but of course, if you think about it um, and you know a number of people have done work on this, these women were having sex with both East India company officers and with Indians of various statuses um, and they could actually act very nicely as spies yeah one side or another um and so you you and there's there you know i mean there are all sorts of different different situations that a lot of these women were in so a number of them were following were camp followers of the east india company armies um but there were a whole pile who uh were not and so it's a really they played a really interesting role there
3: that's insane and we love socking it to the east india company on oh history hack because they are absolute shitbags bags for what of a better description yeah. but when the, so they go down in flames after the indian mutiny yes, and, really. and the british government move in and they are essentially done and now the east india company is a shop somewhere in london isn't it that sells yeah. i can't yeah. remember what they sell um that is at the end of tea, William's very expensive book. expensive tea. That's it, expensive tea. I, I love that William used that as the last line in his book just to sort of give them the finger. But exactly. the downfall of the East India Company didn't mean good things for the courtesans either. Why is that?
0: No, it is. It it didn't. So um, before um, 1857, actually, the courtesans and and um, other sex workers, um, you know, of all shades and sizes and varieties, um, played a really important role um, in the company um, as well as um, in uh, in amongst Indian patrons, um, you know, as performers, as uh, camp followers, as I've just said, what was called the Lul Bazaar, the Red Bazaar that followed the army, Um, A number of um, courtesans and um, ordinary sex workers were employed in the uh, East India Company armies and went to places like Singapore and Penang with the armies Mm. Um, and got really interesting information about them from some of the newspapers at the time there. But what happens is that actually gradually over the 19th century, you get this hardening of attitudes towards the patronage of um, Indian arts. So... You know, that's what this what in...
3: essentially happens, isn't it? Is that the Victorians come in and crap all over centuries of tradition and put their yes. mean spirited British Christian that's plant right. on it. And yeah, it's the beginning right. of the end.
0: Yeah, it is. Well, it's not quite the beginning of the end. So so <laughs> so what happens is that you get this increase in you know, you get this drop off in in Europeans who are willing to patronise Indian music and dance, though there are still some um and i mean you know men are men
3: <laughs> yeah men still um, want sex yeah
0: exactly um and um but after 1857 um the east india company gets rightfully booted out because they made such a dreadful hash of things yeah. see uh, you later bye bye and <laughs> crown law comes in and, which means that acts of parliaments passed in britain by and large have to be you know um exported to the colonies um and the first um the first acts um that have an effect here are firstly the criminalization of homosexuality, which means that a number of um of the male uh, i've been calling them courtesans but that you know they're you know buns and these are you know they overnight um their activities are criminalized um and um, the 1864 Contagious Diseases Act. I know it's very thrilling, which was brought in to protect, um, actually, all British Army soldiers from venereal disease from themselves,
3: um, basically. Yeah, basically.
0: So it was. These were regulations that were brought in to um, to put uh, diseased sex workers uh, into lock hospitals um, so that they didn't infect um, the the army. Officers uh, and soldiers, ordinary soldiers. And these were brought in in India as well. And overnight, um, these amazing prima donnas I mean, they, you know, think of, they were always referred to in the 1820s by Europeans as the Catalanis of India. And Angelica Catalani was this amazing opera diva uh, mm. in, in London. Um, and um in the late 18th century so you've got these great, amazing opera divas who are then treated by the by British legislation as prostitutes And this word cutty people prostitute. basically and so you get this conflation of the word to wife with the word prostitute this kind of moralization this moral stigma against um women in various kinds of sex work um And then on top of that, in the late 19th century, um, almost all of the matrilineal communities, uh, hereditary communities of professional courtesans, are notified by the British government in India as what are called criminal tribes. Um, And this was largely to do with the fact that um, a lot of these communities, the ones that weren't indentured in a particular court, um, were itinerant. They travelled from place to place. Even And some of the top uh, artists, the Derrida wife, travelled from place to place to perform.
2: Mm. Um,
0: and they were all notified as criminal tribes because they were itinerant, because vagrancy was a really big um, issue in uh, British legislation at the time. Um, and this increased kind of a moral stigma, um, uh, from the burgeoning Indian middle and upper middle classes who rose to political and cultural prominence in the Victorian era in India. Um, And so from the 1890s onwards, you get Indians writing um, into the newspapers, um, uh, setting up what is called the anti-Norch movement, which is saying that the arts of singing and dance are entirely in the hands of um, women of ill repute, um, and men should not be going to these women of ill repute, um, and these art forms are too precious to leave to these people. So what we need to do is we need to rescue these forms um, so that respectable women can learn to to please their husbands at home with their singing, a little bit like playing the piano in Victorian English. <laughs> um, and and this is what happened through the first decades of the uh 20th century. Um, these uh, you have these music reformers and dance reformers who take the classical dances and classical song genres performed by Tawaif in the north um and Devadasis in the South and turn them into, for the north, katak dance, which was also performed by male performers, of course, as well, and Bharatanatyam dance in the south. Um, and so these two forms actually come from courtesan traditions, but they they take the art away and give it to respectable Brahmin uh, upper class upper caste um, young women and men to perform. Um, and so the devadasis themselves become you know pushed into different directions. Um, and and this all ends. Um, just at the point of independence and afterwards when there is um, the 18, sorry, the 1947 uh, Devadasi Prevention of Dedication Act, which uh, makes being a Devadasi illegal in the South, in Tamil Nadu. Um, And then in 1951, all India radio puts a broadcast ban on any woman whose quote, private life was a public scandal, unquote. Um, And so to wife, and Devin Darcy, all those who could be identified as such were banned from the radio um, and sent to the margins of cultural life. And um, yet. Yeah.
3: And, and yet. yet, they've segued into they, those hereditary lines are still there, aren't they? And they are. they've segued into the recording industry and well right. what, what we call Bollywood.
0: And that's right. So um so this this sounds like this is terribly depressing story, the courtesan tale where it just ends in the courtesan disappearing from the story. No, these were extraordinarily entrepreneurial women. Um, and throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century, the the best and cleverest elite Wives and Devadasis actually took advantage of rapid developments in technology, in urbanization and particularly celebrity culture, print culture, um, to make names for themselves on the public stage. Um, so you have them being photographed and you have, you know, programs and you have, you know, all, all of these things. And so they, they, it's women from these communities because these are the only women who are allowed to perform in public they become pioneers as singing actresses on the Calcutta theatre stage in the 19th century. Um, And then in 1902, um, the International Gramophone Company turns up on its first uh, international recording expedition in India. Um, And the first people they can get to perform for them are the Tawaiif, and particularly a famous one, a woman called Goha Jan. Um, and there's a book on her life, actually. Um, and they would sing their, these three-minute uh, discs, because that's all, all the space you had. Um, and at the end, she would say, Miram Gohaja mehe. So my name is Goha Chan. Um, And she was, in fact, from a mixed Indian-Armenian-Jewish background and she could sing in multiple languages. And she became a massive star through gramophone recordings because once you separate the, the wife's body from her voice, the voice can enter respectable spaces yeah. on the gramophone recording. And so she kind of made a huge name for herself as a star that way um and then of course they become the first stars on the radio um they become the first actresses in silent film and then of course the first singing actresses in the hindi in hindi cinema industry from 1931 um and some of the um the um so playback which um, you know it normally in bollywood you separate the voice of the singer um from the body and acting of the actress mm. um that didn't really come in until the late 40s Um, and um, so you have you had to have actresses who could sing and who were willing to appear acting and singing and dancing at the same time
3: it's not easy
0: perfect Um, yeah so um, so you have these um, two amazing uh, singers two of the best singers of the 20th century who are renowned for their classical music and their devotional music um, but who used this technology to transition from being a, a, a wife in the case of Begum Akhtar and from being the, the daughter of a Devadasi in the case of Ms. Subolakshmi to being these unassailable uh, musical celebrities garnered, you know, huge national and international accolades um, and highly decorated and most beloved singers of the 20th century. Um, and they used this transition to get there. Um, they were both born within two years of each other. Begum Akhtar uh, born as Akhtaribai Fezabadi in um, in, in 1914, and Ms. Subalakshmi in Chennai in 2016. It's not 2016. Nineteen. <laughs> I was going to say she's strong. <laughs> <laughs> Very young. She's four years old. Um, and uh, Begum Akhtar died in 1974, um, and Ms. Subalakshmi in in 2000. Um and um I like it. Victory. It's a victory.
3: Yeah. It's great. It's and, like and despite yeah. the Victorians yeah. and the East India Company and all of the crap that Britain laid at India's door, that part of culture has survived.
0: Absolutely, it did survive. And actually, even still today, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about how sad and desperate and terrible the lives of uh bar girls are in Bombay and how they're exploited and, and so on. In fact, most of those women um, come from the same matrilineal hereditary communities that have been around for a thousand plus years, the Nats, the Berias, the Kanchini, um, and they are still performing dance to make a living beautifully as dancing bar girls in the bars in Mumbai. Awesome. So they've made that transition.
2: Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about uh, Indian courtesans. Um, wives, reason. um, and mistresses, concubines, um, and various, Yeah, pretty much. I'm trying <laughs> to make this Indian long list. Indian women. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm trying to make this long list here, and it's uh, not coming out very well. But thank you so yeah. much for joining us, anyway. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's a delight to talk to you
3: join us a bit later for back chat once again alina and i will be discussing some burningly non-important question in history and being rather silly and then join us on monday when david davis will be back this is the author of the quinton journals he came on before to tell us all about charles stewart's navy he's going to explain to us from start to finish the Spanish Armada. So don't miss that one because it's an epic, brilliant event in British history, but we find out exactly what happened, why the Spanish were routed and whether we actually deserve any credit at all. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.